Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guests today are two visionary artists who were recently in Bloomington for India Remixed, a four-month international festival presented by the IU Arts and Humanities Council. A little later in the program, we'll hear a conversation with Barty Kerr, one of India's most prominent contemporary artists. Our first guest is Mira Nair. She's the writer, director, and producer of award-winning films such as Salam Bombay, Mississippi Masala, and Monsoon Wedding. And each of her films is kind of a study in cross-cultural identity, featuring characters who are trying to negotiate the complexities of life while also honoring their heritage. Mira Nair was born in India and educated in the U.S. She teaches here, too, at Columbia University. And when she's not there or traveling the world or making films, she's tending her garden at her home in Uganda, where she's lived since 1991. While she was in Bloomington, she spoke with Janae Cummings. Mira, welcome to Profiles. It's wonderful to be here. You're known as a director who you tell stories no one else will. You tell stories of the outsider. You tell stories that get under people's skin. And it seems that the seeds for this kind of point of view are planted in childhood. What captured your imagination growing up in India? What inspired you? I grew up in a very small town in Bhubaneswar, Orissa, East India. My father was a civil servant there, and not much happened. There was a a movie theater came in when I was like 10 years old. It was a town of ancient temples and tall grass growing and two older brothers and cricket in the Bougainvillea and stuff like that. What really has always been the cornerstone of my imagination is the shocking iniquity that you're impossible to turn a blind eye to in our Indian society where haves and have-nots live cheek by jowl. So, and it's not like apartheid, which is like, you know, they're not taken away from your consciousness. So to live with people who had a fraction of what I did and to be actually, as you're growing up, children as friends literally with the cook's son or the milkman coming in, my engagement was always about that side of things. And it wasn't because one felt a charitable tolerance for them or a sorriness or anything. It was just this was our life and this was how we lived. But it was a world that was right there. It was different from mine, but we were united in several ways, you know. But that kind of juxtaposition constantly really opened my eyes to want to be able to talk of this world and to question this world and to say why is it that, you know, I go to school and she doesn't, you know, why is it that they don't sit on the same sofas as I do? Those simple questions in the beginning and then they become more complex. So it was that, trying to make sense and challenge as well uh, that world. And that world also included in it the seeds of patriarchy. You know, why is it that my brothers go to such schools and I am supposed to be satisfied with the country school? And even though my family would are uh, very liberal and very much would deny all these charges, but still there was a difference between the boys and the girl. And it was those questions, I think, that compelled me to find a way to express myself in this zone this point of view? Is it something that your parents supported or called out also? Because I think there are plenty of young people who grow up in affluence or at least relative wealth who 
maybe see these inequities and think that's how it's supposed to be. And their parents don't disabuse them of those notions. I'm grateful because my mother was a huge inspiration to me and still is. She called herself a professional beggar very early on in life and started setting up a health home for the healthy children of leper parents. The leprosy was a big part of our problem in Orissa at the time. And so my mother is an activist and a social worker and definitely engaged, continues to be engaged. She now runs the Street Kids Foundation that we set up with Salam Balak Trust after my first film, Salam Bombay. So there was no resistance from my family Mm -hmm. at the time for my inclinations. And, you know, so I was allowed to kind of pursue whatever thoughts, you know, I mean, they did think I was nuts, you know. I was called Pugly. My nickname is Pugly, which means crazy girl. Because, you know, I would go running in the morning, for instance, and I would come back with the milkman and I would make him sit right next to me and I would make him tell me his story. And my mother would say, what are you doing? You've got to go to school. And I would say, but this is better than school. So there were things like that. But my family is a pretty, you know, especially for my mother, uh, real activism is in our family. And I grew up with that around me. So my questions and my challenging this was not something that was shunned. And you took this activist mind into kind of political theater when you were a teenager. How did that come about? How did that work? Well, you know, the burning question was always, can art impact the world? Can anything that is to do with artistic expression actually change something? And it's an idealistic question that still compels me. That was what led me into political theater because I grew up in these Irish Catholic convent schools that had great studies and great knowledge of Shakespeare and this and that. And we used to perform all manners of musicals and Shakespeare. But it was this great radical Indian playwright, Badal Sharkar from Calcutta, who would take themes of what was daily life around us and convert them into a play that would then be performed literally on the streets. And that, to me, really struck a chord because it was about engaging the world that was actually around me rather than just the Shakespeare of it all, you know? Both Mm -hmm. were important, but this was a way to really engage with the people. And I did that for uh, at least a a year or so. But I did my other stuff, you know, alongside it. I also performed in experimental versions of Macbeth or English plays and so on. So I was an actor, really, growing up uh, from the ages of 15 to 18. I was part of a theatre company in Delhi, and we did this stuff, which... I must say, in retrospect now, on the other side, I mean, it was a real foundation of so many interests that have become now my life, whether it's in theater or performance or working with actors or being able to make stories, you know, out of the land that's around you. These were all the seeds of what became my way of expressing myself. You leave Delhi and you get a full-ride scholarship to Harvard studying theater, but this is not the same kind of theater. This is not the political theater. This is not the protest theater. No. How did you respond to that? You know, I was puzzled that theater wasn't even an elective. It wasn't even a a course. It was something just purely extracurricular. And I did that. I was Evita and Evita Perron. I was Arkadina in The Seagull. I did what I could do. But in the summers, I went to New York City. And uh, there I knocked on the door of La Mama, the great experimental theater run by Ellen Stewart. And Ellen Stewart was just such a remarkable woman. I mean, she just literally let me in and said, you can hang out. And in the summers, I would go and sit in La Mama. And I saw face to face the 
evoking of Liz Suedo's Making the Runaways, which was truly, I think, the seed that led to my film Salam Bombay later. I saw Andre Sarban making the Greek trilogy. I saw Joseph Chaikin. I studied with him. So my real dose of theater, the open theater and Judith Molina and uh, Julian Beck, I mean, that's what I did. You know, that was the fodder, the fuel that kept me going. But when I returned to the university, I had to study something. And I literally took a course in cinema verite, in the study of the moving camera, which was taught by none other than the founder, really, of the moving camera, which was Ricky Leacock and Penny Baker. And I studied with them at MIT. It was a turning point because I understood that using the cinema of life with a visual tool like a camera enabled me to both be that activist that I wanted to be, but tell a tale visually, have more control over my life, because as an actor, you have no control, especially when you're beginning. You're at the mercy of other people's visions. Filmmaking became this way of encompassing my interests. And then I became a major in film at Harvard and really got my first very halting education in cinema, you know, seeing the films of Chris Marker and Jean Rouche and Bunuel, and then finally Satyajit Ray, my own great guru who I had hardly seen in India because you hardly could get to see these offbeat films at that time. So then my education in cinema began around the age of 20. You spoke of Leacock, also D.A. Pinnebaker, who um, directed the Monterey Pop Festival documentary, is that right? That's right. Both of these individuals and other mentors, I assume, really taught you about filming truth. Yes. How do you film truth without manipulating truth, at least in some kind of way? How do you tell that story and still retain, I don't know, the foundation of it? Well, it was the training, really. And it's a very good question, because what is truth, you know, uh, and can you really show it unmanipulatedly? But in the training of the original cinema, which is very different from the documentaries one sees now, which are sort of heightened and manipulated and really set up in a very almost a fictional manner. But in the tradition of the true cinema, you're literally... Uh, with your camera, a fly on the wall, with people who you choose to spend time with, and then turning the camera on as you think something valuable might be happening. So it's an exercise in patience Mm -hmm. and humility and trust. You have to surrender to the person that you are really hoping will let you into their lives. And you have to be there with them and hope that they are comfortable enough with you as the days go by for you to really see what is actually the truth of what is going on. And then you have to have the stamina to record it and to make some sense of it and then eventually make sense of it in the narrative of it in the editing room where you're then shaping it. It's quite an art form that requires really a lot of patience and self-belief because many times you think, what the hell am I doing here, you know? But eventually, as you do that, and as life unfolds in front of you, there is a kind of unpredictability. There's Mm -hmm. a kind of absolute unexpectedness that happens that you just, uh, you know, I made a film about a subway newsstand worker on 116th Street in Manhattan, a Gujarati guy who'd just come from India a few months ago. And before he left, his parents hurriedly married him to whom he called a peasant woman so that he wouldn't marry an American. And while I was shooting him and seeing his life here, his wife in India gave 
birth to their son. And he suddenly decided to leave to go and see his son. And I convinced him that I should come with him. <laughs> and when we went to India on that plane, we get off and he sees this son who looks just like him, but he refuses to speak to the mother because by now he feels American and he feels like, oh my God, I got myself a peasant. I don't want to speak with her. And he ended up speaking just to my camera with this son who looked just like him. And there's the wife who is, you know, hardly knows her husband and who decides to reach out to him through my camera as well. So suddenly my film, which was supposed to be about uh, subway newsstand immigrant troubles, began to become this domestic drama where the camera was the intermediary between a husband and a wife with a son in between them who looked just like the father, but he was an absentee father. The son did not know this man. And that dilemma began, you see. And there was life in front of me and my camera. And you couldn't write that. Yeah. You couldn't imagine that. But that's the true essence of what happens in Cinema Verite, is that you don't know. And life is infinitely more powerful and stranger than fiction can ever be. How do you know when to wrap up the story? How do you know when to pack up your cameras and go home and get into the editing bay and start working? Well, when your money runs out. <laughs> Not quite, but there is a way when you feel like, you know, my film had a, the film is called So Far From India. And my film had a kind of natural ending where this time in India where everyone is trying to talk to this man about taking his wife back with him. And they're all talking about the dream of America and take her back and, you know, you have your son. And the question became, what will he do? And at the end of it, he leaves without her. And that became my ending, you know, the dream of America and how it changes people back home. But of course, life again is infinitely interesting. And what happened actually in life after the film ended was that he sent for her and she completely runs his life and he cannot function without her. He loves her. He's indebted to her. And she is the strength of his struggle in America. So that's the sequel that I haven't made and I probably won't make because this is already 35, 40 years ago. That's life. And that's Cinema Verite. You followed that film up with India Cabaret. Yes. Is that right? And that was a film that looked at the stereotypes mm -hmm. of exotic dancers. Um, you lived with dancers for four months, mm -hmm. and your father was hopping mad about it. And mother. <laughs> they just thought, I have disappeared. Because it's just not done that somebody from our kinds of families would go and live in a tenement and actually mm -hmm. definitely be mistaken for a stripper night and day. But you see... Again, if you're aspiring for a kind of truth, you know, why would somebody show you their life if you haven't actually have even a glimmer of it, you know? And the quickest way to understanding the double standards of a society, which is in essence what I was trying to capture in India Cabaret, is to be subjected to it yourself and not to be removed from it and looking at it from an ivory tower, all these poor people who have to struggle. No. And also the people you're making a film about, why should they reveal any of the uh, challenges? Or why should they reveal anything at all? And subject themselves to your yeah. gaze. Why? Mm -hmm. And especially tough numbers like uh, Rekha and Rosie and these dancers who had seen it all. They'd seen it all. So why would they? Why do we see India Cabaret now? It's still taught in courses. It's still looked at. It's still alive because it captured something that you don't often see. And again, 
even while making it i had no idea what it would be so i'm living with these women i'm seeing their the double standards that they're with i'm seeing what they're dealing with and because they dance every night in this club alcohol becomes my best friend people are drunk while they're watching it and i convince a man who comes often to the club to let me go home with him and live with him and his traditional extended family and his wife the the so-called respectable wife as opposed to the dancers who are not respectable and then it suddenly becomes this triangle indian style of the woman who has respectability but dreams of freedom this man in the middle and these women who are outside respectability but who have a pretty liberated life i mean liberated from these mores of the constraints that the wife lives with but at the same time it's very painful because one of the dancers is earning money for dowry for her sister's wedding and she travels across india in a train we go with her to give this money so that her sister can be married respectably and as she enters the village you know tries to enter her own home and receives her mother her mother says you are inauspicious you cannot come into the house while this marriage is going on because you have chosen to sell your body give us your money but don't come in and she does give the money and she weeps outside and not weeps she's sort of like tough and and anguished and she talks to my camera and says what is this life and that is what this kind of filmmaking can do with great surprise and with great i mean i had no idea that this would happen i thought that we would be at a wedding but instead we were locked out but it was the core of what i was trying to say is look at the inequity of this world look at the double standards of this world look at the hypocrisy of our values did you receive any pushback or have you received pushback by exposing these double standards by calling people out enormously people when we showed india cabaret in india i received an enormous amount of pushback because feminists took offense and said you know uh, i was whatever they had a whole point of view about it and it was only until working women that was so interesting unions of women's groups working women's groups took on this film india cabaret as a kind of flag for themselves because this really revealed mm-hmm. their world their challenges and it was not just uh, you know sex workers it was women who worked period you we know you know what it takes to survive who knows what it takes and then it became a huge uh, debate and pretty much a sensation but initially the pushback was immense because it challenged people it challenged men and it challenged some women too and it challenged our world at that time and it challenged it in an unfettered way it wasn't all glammed up it was in the language of the real street you know it was a language of the people which is also was radical at the time because movies until then were just about this artificial almost bollywood kind mm-hmm. of universe they hadn't seen the reality as this film showed it filmmaker Mira Nair in conversation with Janae Cummings You're listening to Profiles from WFIU You're famous for kind of fluidly moving between Hollywood <laughs> and uh that machine in kind of independent cinema but after Salam Bombay you had Mississippi Masala starring Denzel Washington who was fresh off his Oscar from yes. Glory and that was a studio film once you've been a studio player what is it like stepping back into an independent film like what are the differences in Mississippi Masala was 
conceived of and really executed as an independent film, but in a studio at that time that championed independent cinema, like Cinecom was. Similarly, later, it became Focus Features, it became Fox Searchlight. These classics divisions of studios mm -hmm. really saw themselves as champions of independent cinema and to some extent still do. Uh, so it was kind of a middle ground of wanting your vision, preserving your vision, and yet being with the studio. So I aspire to do that, you know, keep making my independent cinema with the studio distribution. Some other films I've made, like, say, Vanity Fair or Amelia or now Queen of Katwe. Well, Queen of Katwe was much like that in the sense it was really... I mean, it was made with Disney all the way, and but with their complete support for my sensibility, which was really an independent filmmaker. Mm -hmm. So I've worked that fine line of trying to preserve my voice and yet work as a team player in a studio situation. Some other films like Monsoon Wedding, Namesake was also done with Fox Searchlight, but Monsoon Wedding was done very independently. Uh, what I like best is... Let me do what I do, you know, and if you love it, support it and I'll work with you. But if you tamper with it in its core, which happens all the time, then things change, you know. Uh, and some of these films like Salam Bombay, like Monsoon Wedding, like The Namesake and even Queen of Katwe, I work with people, but they're not tampering with it. It's really what I wanted to do almost from frame to end, you know. So that's what I try to go for. And many times studios are looking for that sensibility. Right. But I have relationships that allow me to have my sensibility protected. It seems in Hollywood, in this, you know, as an outside observer uh, perspective, that there are a lot of stories about directors who they want to make that artistic film. They want to explore these complexities of life, but it's not going to be a blockbuster film. It seems that they can't get the funding unless they do the rom-com, unless they do, yeah. like, the popcorn film. Have you faced that dilemma ever? I've chosen not to face it because I don't want to be on that type of list that makes me do one big film in order to do the other one. I really believe that you are what you do. And I've seen several of my friends and several of my colleagues who have bought the party line in order to do their work, but by the time they come back to doing their work, they are so far from the work mm -hmm. that they have changed. And I don't see myself in that path. My criteria when I'm offered things from the outside is, can anyone else make this film? And if I can think of people who can make this film, they should really make it. I have to have a point of view and I have to, I have to understand that I, only I can do this because I have a way in that no one else will have, you know. But mostly I have to say that it is, uh, I, I am inspired by my own ideas rather than someone else's. In 2012, you made the political thriller, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, mm -hmm. uh, which is based on a Mohsen Hamid novel. Mm -hmm. The film showed the impact of 9-11, not from an American perspective, mm -hmm. which is what I think most of us in the States are used to, but that of a Pakistani man. Mm -hmm. Why was it so important to make this film and to make it from that perspective? You know, the world really changed after 9-11. And living in America as I do, I kept hearing the monologue. I kept not hearing the dialogue between the other side. And the monologue is a very dangerous thing where you only hear one point of view and you hear a point of view that colors any Muslim, that colors any person who does not look like you in the light of the other and further the enemy. 
I thought Mohsin really wrote about this dilemma in such a brilliant way because he, like me, and like the protagonist of Reluctant Fundamentalist, Chengiz, uh, was a lover of America. And what does a young man who happens to be Pakistani, who is a lover of America, who comes to this country as I have done, as he has done, who goes to the best schools, who, uh, you know, joins Wall Street, who becomes this golden boy, falls in love with a nice blonde girl, uh, wants America and rises in America. What happens when this person is suddenly, you know, 9-11 happens and suddenly he's just a plain old Muslim in the Wall Street corporate structure. And he realizes that he is being betrayed by an ethos that he is in love with or was in love with. And that dilemma, which we all face in different degrees, has never yet been seen on film. And like Jack Kerouac wrote the coming-of-age story in, in On the Road, which I was once offered long ago, you know, the Americans and like so many of us, we have our coming-of-age stories, but we don't have the South Asians or the world that I come from does not have its coming-of-age story in this global interconnected universe like Mohsin spelt out in The Reluctant Fundamentalist. And I was very keen to do that on several levels. One, to dispel the illusion about what Pakistan has been drummed out to be in the media, which is this insane, terrorist, violent universe, which uh, a small part of it is, but the, the culture of it, the refinement of it, the etiquette, the music, the, the family ties, the real fabric of that society... I hardly knew it, even somebody who's a neighbor of it. I just had no idea. And that, coupled with this kind of eye-opening sense of what the universe is becoming uh, if you are a young Muslim man, and how do you deal with that, and how do you claim who you really are, and all those questions, you know, the reluctant fundamentalist gave me that foundation to leap off from. That is why I made it, and that is why I made it independently, too, because otherwise, if it was with a studio, it would have been whitewashed from the moment one. And I wanted to do that. And, and I think we, uh, you know, I knew it would be a difficult film to make. I knew it would be a hot button. I knew it would not be a blockbuster. It was the hardest film I made because it took five years to make because for various reasons, financial being the most of it. But I'm really glad it exists because it tells a story of a moment of time in an unflinching way that otherwise would not be told. It's a beautiful film, and I think if for anyone who is of a minority or a marginalized community, having another perspective to that main narrative is just so important, even even if it's not a narrative that is your own, mm-hmm. just knowing that it is out there is just mm-hmm. really vital. There was criticism that it was U.S. bashing. How would you respond to that? Because I, It was not the intention at all, and I really actually don't think the criticism has any foundation mm-hmm. because actually it came from being a lover of America. Yeah. It came from this is an America that is full of openness and curiosity and lets me in and opens its heart to me and what has happened to it from the top now. You know, mm-hmm. It's not U.S. bashing. It's a real question of looking at what you love and asking why. We spoke a little bit ago about Queen of Cotway. It is one of your most recent films. It stars Lupita Nyong'o and David Oyelowo. It's an upbeat story about an impoverished teenage Ugandan girl who becomes a chess champion. Mm -hmm. 
And as we said before, that's a Disney film. And yeah, this is a Disney film, and there are no lead roles for white actors, which means there are no white saviors. There are no, I guess, when you're thinking of a Disney film in Africa, there are no animals. There's this is just a story about people. And for a Disney film, this feels like a radical act. What Disney is this? <laughs> the new Disney, the woken up Disney. You know, the remarkable thing was... Uh, it came to me from Disney, and I live in Kampala, Uganda, and it's a true story of Fiona Motesi, who actually lives in the slums of Katwe and through chess became not just a champion, but someone who used her acumen and chess to rise herself and her family out of the poverty that she knew. In Uganda, I did not know about Fiona. Mm. It was Tendo Nagenda, one of the vice presidents of Disney, who happens to be Ugandan-born, who came to my garden in Kampala and offered me this idea, which was a little article in an ESPN sports journal about this kid who had gone to Russia for the chess Olympics, illiterate, and pretty much... Uh, had become a champion. And I immediately was interested. I said I'd like to meet Fiona, and I did. And uh, just was struck by her self-possession and her modesty and her absolute acumen. (laughs) And much like my early documentary work, we developed the screenplay through the stories of her actual growing up in Katwe and her mother and her indomitability and her struggle really to even explain what chess was in life. And this amazing coach, Robert Katende, who is played by David Oyelowo, who really was the key to helping her understand that she had this gift. It was just a joy to make. You know, I've lived in Uganda now 29, 30 years. I started there while making Mississippi Masala in 1989, 1990. And and I longed to return to a contemporary tale of the Uganda I love and know. And I started a film school in Uganda called Maisha. It's 14 years old now. And we have now an alumni of 700 students, all East African, who are making films. And 30% of the crew of Queen of Katwe is actually Maisha alum. But I longed to be able to make that story myself, you know, of the Uganda I know and of the people really that I know, the incredible dignity and the incredible humor and style of people who have great grace and who never say die and who believe in being joyous about life despite the real struggle and the despair of it. And that was Fiona's story in Queen of Katwe, and I just loved making it. Again, like Salam Bombay, my first film, it was also like working with children off the streets, of the local communities. Lots and lots of non-actors with great legends like Lupita and David. And that amalgam, I mean, I trust that amalgam because it keeps the truth alive. And it's become a great anthem, this film, uh, across the continent of Africa because it teaches us and shows us that it's possible to do it ourselves, to do it with our communities, with our own families, with our own acumen. And we do not need the white saviors. We do not need that aid, which is almost hand in glove uh, with how this continent is perceived. And it's been a great joy. Do you think this is the kind of film that could have an impact in Hollywood, that studio executives see what's been done here, try to replicate what you've done? You know, I think it's a very important beginning. But what I also saw was that studio executives need to know how to distribute such films that are special films that could become blockbusters, but they really are not fashioned out to be that Mm -hmm. in the beginning, that an audience needs to be kind of prepared for such a 
I think, deeply African film, yeah. you know. So that's interesting, too. But I think that the very existence of it and the fact that, again, it's an amalgam of those you know are as our movie stars and those you don't. And the fact that it's basically a beautifully told story that lifts your heart. You can be a person in Indiana, you can be somewhere anywhere in the world, you'll still relate to it because you'll see yourself in it. These are lessons that are vital, I think, for studio executives to see. But it will be a long time coming <laughs> for it to really become part and parcel of uh, a studio vocabulary. Mm-hmm. This year's Academy Awards, Frances McDormand closed her award-winning speech with the two words inclusion writer. You spent a career bridging cultures, races, gender, um, particularly in your independent films. How do you make sure when we're talking about studio films, we're talking about Hollywood, how do you make sure that diversity remains present? I don't have to make sure, my darling. I live in it. And I believe that diversity is actually the stuff of life. And not just because we have to remind ourselves that it is there, but because that is the electricity, the sizzle, the drama, the humanity is who we are. So I refuse to get a lecture about diversity because I that's my world, you know. And it's a world that others have to kind of wake up to. And it's also something that, you know, in making independent film, I've always made that film that shows the unbelievable diversity of our world. That's my life, right? But it's the fact that until very recently, studio executives or those who finance films are financing films about people who look like them. Of course, yeah. That's the reality. So this is a very important time now where actually the reins of who makes what changes and reflects that diversity. I mean, Queen of Katwe would not be made without Tendo Nagenda. Black Panther would not be made without him. You know, these are people who will open the doors and windows to our consciousness in that mainstream that these things can get done. And thank goodness that they are successful because then that opens other doors. But that is what it is. I mean, you're right to say that I've done this forever, you know, because I actually haven't done anything else. Because my big thing is every film is actually a political act. I recently ran into Juliette Lewis uh, at an award ceremony and we were friends and I made Hysterical Blindness, this beautiful kind of... Yeah, with Uma Thurman and Juliet long time ago. And we made this very brave film called Hysterical Blindness. And Juliet ran into me and, and at this ceremony the other day and she said, Mira, when are you going to like work with me again? And I had a couple of drinks. And I said, Juliet, as soon as white people interest me, I'll be back with you. <laughs> and, and, and she said, oh, Mira, you're just the same. And you know, we were just having a great old time. But it is like that. You see, there are lots of people who tell the stories of their worlds and of their white worlds and their worlds. It's not for me to tell them, you know. I will tell the story of my world and our world, which is a much more complicated world, I think, or whatever. The world is what it is, you know. So I do think, you know, it's what I choose to make the film about, which is vital, right? And I will continue to make films that, again, if we don't tell our own stories, no one else will tell them. And if they tell them for us, they will not be what it is. So that's my main mantra. You were recently tapped to uh, direct A Suitable Boy, 
yes. for the BBC. Congratulations. That the BBC has commissioned another period drama is not a big deal, but that it is the first BBC production to feature an entirely non-white cast is a colossal thing. What excites you about this? I have loved The Suitable Boy since it was written. I mean, it's a magnificent opus on, again, the complexity of India, a free India. It's two years or three years after partition, after independence, that Suitable Boy is written in 1950. It's the story of us. You know, it's the story of this extraordinary country and extraordinary parts of the country when Hindu and Muslim lived in coexistence, even despite the partition of the India and Pakistan, the relationships between these two communities were really deep and created an entire culture that is in today's right-wing India being obliterated slowly but surely. And for me, that's also a very important moment to speak about and to be able to capture in the greatness of Vikram Seth's writing. I just... It's like it's like for a African American to make Malcolm X, you know, for me to make a suitable boy. It's that important, you know. And even to cast it across India and Pakistan, I hope, is something that really excites me and I've already been doing now. We've been I've been directing it for the last five months already and we hope to shoot in October. But I jokingly call it the crown in brown, you know, because, uh, you know, it, what it has with the weight of the BBC and in, in immense craft. I mean, Andrew Davies uh, has written the screenplay from Vikram's book and he wrote War and Peace. He did Les Miserables. I mean, it's, it's fa- I'm in the hands of great craftspeople, which is wonderful to be. But still the tenor, the timber, the sensuality, the music, the humanity, the all of it, the drama, the, the language even is ours. I'm just so happy to have that craft behind me, but the ability to be able to tell this story in the most authentic way possible, but also the most sumptuous way possible. Well, Mira, I'm so glad you joined us today. It was a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. I wish you great luck. Thank you so much. I need it. I need it. Uh, You know, it takes a lot of stamina and guts to keep going in this struggle of making independent work. And I really thank you for your interest and solidarity. Thank you. Filmmaker Mira Nair. She's been speaking with Janae Cummings. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our next guest is Barty Kerr, one of India's most prominent contemporary artists. She works in an array of mediums, plaster, bronze, furniture, even ready-made objects like the traditional Indian stick-on bindi to create a wide variety of pieces. Through her creations, Barty Kerr explores history, tradition, social codes, and cultural misunderstandings. She spoke with Aubrey Cedar. Can you tell us a bit about your origin story, how you got into becoming an artist? Sure. I was born in 1969 in London. I lived in the UK till I was 22 years old. And I went to India on a holiday and stayed in India and made a career and started working. I think I've been making art since I was quite young. I had a quite an exceptional art teacher, actually, at school. And I entered this extraordinary world of art and image making. And it's something that has stuck with me for the rest of my life. And so from a very young age, I always knew that I wanted to be an artist. You left the UK and went to India. Mm. And that's where you started your career as a professional artist. Yeah. Tell me about how you started to do art 
that really investigated the culture in India? I mean, when I was working in the in the UK, my work was predominantly taking references from popular culture. I was making paintings that were very much about my time and who I was growing up in, in the UK and my space. And when I went to India, obviously, I realized that none of that vocabulary had any resonance anymore. So perhaps I needed to start a new and create my own, a new library of image making and imagery. So I think you, I had to kind of reinvent myself. And so it, it takes time. And But I think I was quite persistent. And then I realized that if I needed to train, I was trained as a painter. And painting is quite a solitary activity. I realized that I was quite lonely in India and I and I wasn't really able to experience or go out. And so I thought that maybe if I just was out and about more and in the markets and walking in the streets and taking photographs and meeting people and traveling, then maybe I would um, understand a little bit more of, of my time in India at the time. And so that's how I kind of, it was almost an organic and natural shift towards sculpture and then utilizing the ready-made. And predominantly what people know from my work is the bindi. It's the ubiquitous sign of the third eye. And it's something that I just found and it caught my attention as I was walking through a market. Growing up in the UK, you have a large amount of Indian culture within especially London and different places. And then you have going to India where there's Indian culture. Do you blend the two cultures within your work or did you just completely reinvent yourself when you went to this new place? I I think you, all of us, all of artists, musicians, writers, poets, we're all products of our time and our histories. And so as much as you would think or you can try and analyze it and say there's you know 20% of this and 40% of that it doesn't quite work like that you make work from who you are your work stems from your childhood from the way that you've been brought up the kind of schooling that you had the friends that you know the art that you've seen the teachers that have come in and out of your lives the travels that you've made the experiences that you've had so you're a composite body of everything that you've experienced so that's what i am too Talking about these materials, you're using found ready-made materials, as you say, Mm. um, and then other things in sculpture. What draws you to an object that you want to work with, something that's ready-made, or what draws you to start making with those things, like the bindi? I think it's the, the peculiarity of the object itself. Often it's an object that looks like something but is actually something else. When I was looking at the bindi, it was really the snake shape of the bindi that has the shape of the spermatosa. I was quite fascinated that it was both a masculine and a feminine marker. And I thought, hey, there's something, this could be interesting. Also, I was interested, I was curious about the shape, that it was moving. And just being trained in a visual culture and a visual language, if you can move surface with something so small, imagine what it would be like if you were to put then you know, 10,000 of them on a space, you could make paper move or you could make surface move. Then you move on to other things. And when I shop, like this morning, I was in the antiques market here in Indiana. And it's something that I do whenever I go anywhere. If I'm asked, is there something you want to do? And I was like, yeah, I want to go to either a flea market. I want to go to an old bookshop. I want to go to an antique store. I want to just see if there's anything. And I'll always find something that I can pick up and take back with me to the studio. I'm attracted to objects for their, sometimes for their strangeness, sometimes for the beauty and the making of the object. Sometimes I'm interested just because I like the wood and I like the patina of it. And I might just strip it all down and just use that piece of wood in my work and turn it into something completely else. But in all of the times I shop, I rely on my intuition. 
in some of the ways you've talked about your work, you talk about it being ideas-based or having a line of inquiry. Mm. So do you start by finding a piece, like you said, like at an mm. old bookstore at an antique mall, and then mm. you have a line of inquiry about that object? Or do you have a line of inquiry and then the object strikes you as being able to help you sort that out? I mean, it's not very helpful, but I don't have any rules in my work. And so, it's, you know, it depends. Sometimes the object leads the work and sometimes I lead the work. And it really depends. And when you start to create a language, like I say that in the studio, there's many different things happening at the same time, many, many projects, and they're all cooking at the same time. And so one project leads into another. Objects then become very fluid and you allow them the grace of moving between or changing their minds and saying, I was with that sculpture, but now actually I'm with this one. So when I when I look for things, there's already enough information or there's enough for me to start on something or say, oh, this reminds me of the project I was doing three years ago. Maybe I could pick this up and take it somewhere else. A lot of the time I just leave things in my studio for a very long time. So stuff sits there for years and years and years, and I wonder why I bought it. Then suddenly one day it's activated and I've activated it to become part of something else because I'm looking for a particular shape, object, something that's truncated, something that's supposed to make the work look heavier or lighter or slighter or anything. And then I think, oh, wait a minute, didn't I buy that hat? You know, it's somewhere and I'll go off on a search and I'll find it. It's like I buy objects like you'd buy, like a painter will buy paint. You have to have... Um, Viridian, if you're a painter. So as a sculptor, I feel like I have to have things. I need objects around me to, because uh, it's part of the material. I don't know if this is true, but one really interesting description of your work that I found talks about you exploring cultural misunderstandings and social codes through your work. This thing you talk about, the line of inquiry. Can you unpack what you mean by that when you're talking about what your art does or what it explores? I think... This idea of inquiry is like, for me, the fundamental of art making. I don't necessarily seek to answer the questions that I ask through my work, but I ask many and I'm asking them of myself mostly, but I'm also asking them of my viewers. So when I make the bindi work, say, if it's a representation, if the bindi is a representation or a metaphor for the third eye, I'm asking you, what do you see? And how do you see it? And if it's a residue for the day in the life of you, what have you seen and how has this marker of your consciousness changed the way that perhaps you're going to look at the world today? Do you see better? Do you see more? Do you see more than me? I like the fact that when I make those Bindi works, they look back at you. So they are my eyes to see into your world or into your space. So that's a line of inquiry. One line of inquiry is for me the Bindi works, which are the ways of looking, the ways of seeing. What does it mean to see? I made one work in 2010. It was called Lao's Mirror. Lao's Mirror was mythically a mirror that reflected the thoughts in your mind, which is quite extraordinary, isn't it? To be able to look in a mirror and the mirror to be able to tell you what you're thinking. It's almost terrifying. So for me... Thinking, seeing, this is one way of inquiry that I have in my work. The female sculptures of the goddess women, this is perhaps another line of inquiry. Is it there about the role of femininity in the country that I live in? What does it mean to be a woman? Where is our inherent powers? Are they 
mythological? Are they real? Where do they go? What happens to them? You know, I have a whole series of works of the furniture pieces. Do objects then carry histories? Do they carry memories? Is material alchemical? Does material carry memory of another person? So can plaster, if I take a cast of you, can it give me the essence of you when it goes into your skin and opens the pores of your skin? So I think in my work as an artist, my line of inquiry is with material. It's about making. It's about the power of material. It's about faith that today I decide that this is an artwork by naming it and you somehow take the leap of faith with me and believe that my work is something that I'm showing, is, is something that I've given to you. But actually it's just, you know, it could be just wood and it's just wood with things stuck on it. So the lines of inquiry are really philosophical as well as practical, artistic lines of inquiry. So it's quite traditional, but it's also not So do you think that a work of art is something that we take a leap of faith with the artist on? Something like what you do or even like a painting? It's not something until it is? Yeah. And that's quite beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of like words on a page are just words until they're a story. Until you give them agency. You were speaking about your Bindi work earlier, and one of them that I thought was really interesting was called The Skin Speaks a Language Not Its Own. Mm. And it's this white elephant laying on the ground with all these bindis all over it. Mm. Can you unpack that piece for me, like what you were thinking and, and what the piece means to you? So this piece was a very early piece, 2006. I was looking at the idea. I'd seen an image of a dying elephant. Actually, what I'd seen was the back of its feet loaded onto the back of a truck. And it seemed so... Very terrible, actually, and tragic. And it was a young female elephant. And I, a year before that, I'd made a baby elephant. And somehow I just, it connected. And I was like, well, I have, now I have to make the mother. I've made the child, now I make the mother. And I think in the longer trajectory of my practice, I've made many mothers and childs. But the white elephant, the skin speaks a language on its own, is a sculpture of a life-size dying female elephant. She's very young. She may be in her in elephant years. She's probably in her 40s, so she was my age. She's on this brink of perhaps getting up or falling down, so she's on the cusp of collapse in some ways. And she's covered in, in this sort of skin of the white bindis that I use in my work. And interestingly, what it does is, because like I said before, the shape of these bindis makes the surface move. It makes it vibrate. The work is quite spiritual in some ways, She's sort of floating, this really heavy mass of elephant, which is like, I mean, it is, I mean, it's our largest land mammal. When you see an elephant, I mean, when I made this work, I to sculpt the piece, I, in Delhi, we are lucky, we still have elephants, you know. We have elephants in our city. So I went to the place where, under a place in ITO Bridge in Delhi, in East Delhi, to find my elephants. And I went and I photographed them and I measured them and I was able to meet someone who allowed me to take a tape measure and measure the elephant from, you know, top to bottom. I made the sculpture of this female elephant that I liked very much. This reinvention of yourself as a sculptor involved you going out and becoming more social. You said Mm -hmm. in terms of your, your work with solitary as a painter and then you became more social. It certainly changed the medium that you worked in, but do you think it's changed you as an artist, as the way you see art, the experience of it? 
Um, no, I, no, no, I don't think so. I just think at a time, you know, when I was in my 20s, I needed to be out. So I realized that this was a way for me to interact with myself and with society and to understand my place in Delhi when I moved there. Now I hardly leave my studio and I make sculpture. So, you know, I never go anywhere. <laughs> I just stay in my studio all the time. <laughs> it was just a necessary thing. At the time, that's what you needed to do. So that's what I did. It seems like you draw a lot of elements from different cultures and mm. different things, and you're inspired by different objects that may not have their roots necessarily in India and Indian culture. Mm. Having lines of inquiry into cultures, into people, do you think that it changes the way that your art is made for things to globalize instead of like cultures being specific and sort of contained within a country? That's a really big question, and yeah. it's quite a complex historical question because are the ideas of authenticity really very stable anyway? And you could go off into examples where puritanical ideas of culture have like led to the worst moments in history. So, you know, the thing is, most of us are fluid. Our cultures are fluid. There's influences from all over the world. Language is such. Art has been the same. You can use examples from mid-century, from Turkey, from Persia, how artists from all around the world congregated in different places all around the world to learn from each other. When you talk about a country like India, which is, you know, the size almost of a subcontinent, and sometimes I try to explain it to my friends, I was like, it's difficult to understand or to say India. The distance between the north and south of India is the same between London and Moscow. It's a huge, huge country. We have 47 national dialects and 450 sub-dialects. And of those 47, there'd be 40 written languages. You know, right now, there's just, there seems to be such a very strong and fundamental right-wing ideology that's not just moving across America, it's moving across India very, very, very rapidly and parts of Europe, Austria, Germany, you can see. And it seems to me to be extremely patriarchal, again, it's also kind of veering on sort of fascism and in a strange way, we never really thought we were going to come here. And until until we all sort of at some point communicate and talk again and allow free spaces for dialogue, where slowly, as you see across the world, those spaces are being shut down more and more rapidly and in quite quick succession. And I don't think the point is that Everyone sort of wags fingers and says, you're we're better than you or you're better. It seems to be quite a worldwide phenomena right now. It's a very complicated time. It seems at some point you just want to, you know, I just want to hide my head under a duvet and just pretend it's not all happening. And the other times you want to sort of come out and, and say exactly what it is that you need to say. When all else fails, I just go back to the studio and make my work and and speak through the images that I make. If you want to make art, the way to do it is just to make it and also to learn from the people that have come before you. And I looked at a lot of art growing up and I looked at a lot of books and I went to see a lot of exhibitions with art teacher, without art teacher. But we learned from the greats. We also learned through drawing. And so I generally just do say to students if I meet them, I was just like, just just draw draw anything I mean maybe this is not the way if you're going to be a filmmaker but if you're going to be doing sculpture to understand form you have to know form you have to understand you have to look and be able to 
see things and to see things often means to which for me which how I learned to draw how I learned to see objects was by drawing them um, was literally just dissecting them and breaking them down till there's nothing left and so there are exercises in drawing it's like learning a language you learn your basic nouns and your vowels and your tenses and then you string it all together and so somehow for me to understand form I learned to draw you mentioned the greats. What people do you look up to to get inspired from or have you in your life looked to to learn or to be inspired? The list is so long. It's so long. I mean, where do you start? Do you, start? you don't have a Reader's Digest version? No, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the worst question for any artist because I think it's just so long. You can start from, you know, I'd start from second century Chola bronze, cave painting on wall, pre-monolithic, and you'd go all the way up to yesterday, and, you know, you've got 5,000 years of art and it's it's really difficult to say who, but I look at a lot. I look at everyone. I look at painting, sculpture, filmmaking, anything, everything. I mean, all the magicians and, the you know, the alchemists and the weirdos who make magic, I look at all of them. And you still are looking today up to people. Yeah, I love looking at art. It's, it's really the thing that gives me almost the most... It gives me... Art has been a marker for societies. If you want to know what people were thinking and what they were like, what they saw, how they experienced the world, what history was like, who was in power, the role of sexuality, gender, you look at art, go to a museum. And if you want to find space and find abstraction, if you want to see beauty or the sublime, go to a museum. Artists are like witnesses. They're forerunners. They see things before other people see them because I think as artists we have to look carefully. I'm not saying that people don't look carefully, but I think maybe just as artists they look more carefully. They're keener. Your job is to see and your job is to look, and that's what you do. I'm not going to ever say art will change the world. It's almost just this utopian dream that uh, art can help people cope or help them understand maybe just what they're doing right now. I think we spend so much of our time not only looking into the past, but always looking into the future. We don't enjoy what's happening right now. And so a lot of art is about what's happening now. And that's why it's interesting. Thank you, Barty, for coming and for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. Artist Barty Kerr. She's been speaking with Aubrey Cedar. Both Barty Kerr and Mira Nair were recently in Bloomington as guests of India Remixed, presented by the IU Arts and Humanities Council. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, WFIU.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.